Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. In our eyes, the best way to celebrate both Halloween and the upcoming election is to discuss the horror slasher film, The Purge Election Year. The dystopian film is set in the not-so-distant future where the new founding fathers of America are their dominant political party. But a young newcomer, Senator Charlie Roan, is trying to unseat the incumbent to put a stop to government-sanctioned violence. Joining in our purge of the purge today is culture writer at Vox, Asia Romano. Hi. And writer and producer, Meredith Clark. Hi. This movie is different from a lot of others that we talk about on this show, mainly because this one, to me at least, is not good. Um, uh, But there's a lot to talk about. It it grossed over $118 million in its opening weekend worldwide, which is a lot considering it was only made on $10 million. What is it about The Purge? that has consistently drawn enough of an audience and profit to merit four films and two seasons of a TV show. I mean, don't we all want catharsis in some way? It's the, (laughs) and it's like most base level. I think there's some element of, of that. Um, Also it's so stupid, but they try so hard to do world building and I find myself compelled to watch it when just because of that. It's also, um, it's got the baseline appeal of nihilism, like glitzy nihilism dressed up as, as with the smattering of social commentary. Like it's, it's very, um, it's a lot like Fight Club in the sense that it, it works very hard to condemn the thing that it's glamorizing. Um, but everybody's in, everybody's in on the game. Like everybody knows that you're, you're here to watch people get killed and and things (laughs) up. And, and the, and I think election year, it's so surreal to do this with, with like clown music in the background because I feel like I'm in the purge. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know if you guys can hear, but um, for the listeners at home, there's there's an ice cream truck in the background right now, and and this this conjunction, this paradoxical this paradoxical conjunction of like whimsy and and gleeful mayhem outside, like car- car- carnival mayhem outside, while I'm trying to discuss the very serious topic at hand, is sort of an encapsulation <laughs> of the purge itself because. Uh, you have these um these very these very carnival-esque people who are all wearing masks and um they have uh, any number of weapons that they that they'll use and they're usually um totally in disguise and and so you have this idea of like these marauders just roaming the streets throughout each of the purge films right and um the purge election year especially leans into that there are a number the way it's directed is very um fever dream like in in terms of its its street sequences and and the way that the marauders are portrayed um and it seems to be leaning in more with more self-awareness than ever to to its own nihilism right and its own um gleeful embrace of violence and i always come to, I'm, I'm always um i'm always a little torn because you know you know that it, it it's obviously capitalizing on the representation of violence and mayhem in a way that, that appeals to audiences. Like there are all these scenes in the purge election year of like sort of creative torture, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and, and those scenes are definitely meant to compel audiences. And when I, I think I saw the the film uh, opening weekend with a, a really rowdy audience who was totally into it. Um, and it's just one of those things that I think, 
audiences who go to see films like this know what they're doing. Um, but at the same time, I think most people really keep coming back to The Purge because it is also doing, like Meredith said, that slightly more complicated world building. And it's it's trying to layer um, a compelling social commentary on top of that. And it, it sort of builds out more as it goes along, I think, as it becomes more self-conscious and maybe ashamed of itself <laughs> right. as a franchise. <laughs> but you still also have, like, you have all this world building and have all this social commentary happening alongside, like, these very gauzy dream sequences almost of, of you know, very sexualized women where, with, like, baseball bats and stuff. Like, like <laughs> just here to f*** things up, right? Um, so you you have that sort of, of paradoxical thing happening with Purge and... and which is again part of the commentary of the sh- of the series itself. It's interesting that you mentioned the the social commentary aspect of specifically the election year installment of the Purge movies because I think out of out of all the Purge movies this probably has the most social commentary in it. I mean the tagline of the movie was literally keep America great and it did come out in <laughs> 2016. Um right. so I think their intention of this movie also calling it election year in an election year, um, was right. very, was very, uh, they they were targeting their message about this movie very specifically. Well, they also had an, uh, the, the main, the main female protagonist, uh, also is meant to be kind of, uh, a Hillary Rodham, Clinton, uh, Elizabeth Warren sort of composite, sure. you yeah. know, like we are definitely meant to recognize her as, as someone we know. Right. And I also just think it gave them more opportunities this movie specifically gave them more opportunities to to world build like meredith had said but it just fell flat in a lot of instances like you could see it almost there and you could see like um them poking at certainly poking at many uh, political themes but i think um that was part of and going back to what Lendra, part of the reason the movie wasn't a good movie, um, like <laughs> at, the, at the face of it, because they would world built just enough for the movie to like make sense, but not enough to like satisfy the audience, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense to me, uh, like the way it pans out, because it, they sprinkle in, like you said, world building, world building, world building. It is a, an amazing conceit. For a film that this whole thing has been built on, 12 hours where all crime is legal. And they do a pretty good job of talking about motivations for it, social impacts, and the fallout. But they never dig deep into any of those, the leads that spring off of it. It's all like a line here, a line there, which could be taken as subtlety. But then by (laughs) the end, the way the plots of the film sort of develop, it becomes hypocritical almost like uh, James DeMonaco talks about how he wanted these movies and I think specifically Election Year to be a lot about gun violence. But by the end, you have audiences uh, and I read this a lot in reception about the movie is audiences cheering on everyone killing people. Right. Specifically right. one that comes to mind is um, when – uh, Pequeña Muerte uh, is driving the triage uh, ambulance uh, and runs over the purgers that are outside the convenience store, um, sort of defending them. And then in a single shot gets out of the car and grabbing a shotgun just shoots this girl in the face with like 
so much gore and so directly like it could have been done in a way that probably showed more conflict in her as someone who you know had been a part of the purge and then chose to uh sort of be involved in more uh you know peaceful direct action but instead she shoots this girl in the face doesn't give her a chance to sort of redeem herself or run away or live and and learn her lesson she violently executes her and then says little death is back as this mark (laughs) of pride and i was kind of like but i thought the whole point was that i it just it to me it really does scream hypocrisy Uh, it just falls back on everything that it's trying to criticize i keep finding it so frustrating anytime i see because i've of course i've seen them all uh anytime i watch these movies that uh look i'm a completist what can i say um (laughs) oh i get it because the the universe that it's set in is fascinating i get why every time i find myself so much more interested in the throwaway lines or these bits and pieces of of these elements, every single character who isn't the main character is a person I want to see their story, why they're purging, why they have these, you know, these fears. I'm curious about how purge insurance works. Like all of the actual nerdy, nerdy details of this universe end up being more compelling to me than, especially in election year, what turns out to be a pretty lame white savior narrative. It, it because you have this whole movie that is building up talking about how the people who are actually being sort of hunted in the purge and are the fr- the reason that it was created was to exterminate mainly poor people of color in the United States by this cabal of Christian fundamentalist Republicans and then and it takes very good steps to show how they dealing with the means that they have through direct action and without state support actually are able to at least take care of themselves or support one another in the face of the state sanctioned violence even if it's not always perpetrated by the state. What spoiler alert, it absolutely is, we find out. <laughs> or one thing that's powerful about that is that you like that what you just said about the the communities surviving in the, the face of state sanctioned violence, like that is relatable to people in terms of of sure. extrapolating a metaphor that obviously has ramifications for the way that, that marginalized communities get um get exploited by the government, right? And social systems. And so I think you have two different sort of I guess impulse is driving the audience reaction, I think, and the audience response, because you have, on the one hand, you have like your, you have, I think that right, that recognition that these are the, these are the people that we're supposed to root for, right? Like you're supposed to root for the marginalized underdogs. Um, but then you also have the fact that this is an action movie, uh, slash horror movie. Um, and audiences of those films come to, to see their, their heroes fuck shit up. Like they come to, they come to the, specifically to the theater on on opening weekend to have that shared communal um everybody cheering and clapping in the audience uh for the heroes like that's something that the movie has to deliver on in order to be an effective example of the trope right so how how can you do that if you're also critiquing everything the trope is doing like that's something that not just this franchise has wrestled with but many other uh action movies and um and horror movies have wrestled with right and um and i think the fact that we 
I, I may making I may be making this sound like I admire the franchise more than I do, but <laughs> um, but I do think that like it's it's tried. It, this is the problem you always get whether you're talking about um, any like any type of media from from Elizabethan uh, like morality plays on like as you as you stage this and as you represent the thing is representation endorsement right um, and especially in something that's semi-satirical, like the purge is like, especially election year specifically, which I think is the most satirical of the, the purge franchises or franchise movies. Um, you get this very, very, very thin line between, um, satirizing itself and, uh, this moment where it, it could further indict the audience for enjoying it. Right. Um, but it doesn't ever quite get there. I think it's trying to, like it wants, there are, there are films that I watch that are similar to this where, um, actually I was thinking about the, uh, the church annihilation scene <laughs> at the end, like they basically yeah. have this like giant massacre happen in a church because, um, as part of its commentary on like the, the rise of the NW, the NRA and like the, um, basically the way that the NRA essentially evolved into the founding fathers, uh, which is what the, the purge franchise basically predicates itself on. Right. And you have this, this conflation of the NRA with like, uh, religious Christianity and, and right-wing Christianity and, um, fundamentalism that basically winds up, uh, in a church, uh, where they're about to very religiously kill the the senator, the feminist senator who wants to to ruin everything, um, in this religious right, basically, uh, and it's very very ritualistic. There's a lot of very obvious implied commentary there, right? Um, but then you have this like almost like wi- like Wild West shoot 'em up <laughs> scene that yeah. happens, like this like over the top thing where like the heroes are in the in the like a vestibule up top or something and and in the top of the church and they all get shot at by like this horde of faceless FBI people or or security I don't know, good people with guns. And um yeah. and it's so over the top. It's staged so awkwardly. It's just like it's it really feels like an okay corral kind of shootout like like something mm-hmm. like something you would see in a, a western um and it's this total like tonal shift from here's this moment where you have this um this really kind of like sinister uh religious ritual being executed around the idea of of these people who've essentially like embedded i the ideals of of worship of the second amendment <laughs> basically like that's mm-hmm. what that's what you mm-hmm. have like this this um this idea that the second amendment has become a religious principle um and you sort of see that embodied on screen in a way that could be effective if it weren't immediately undermined um by this and i was thinking about what other types of films i think have done similar things more effectively and i kept thinking about uh the 2014 film uh kingsman which has oh, a yeah, similar, right. which has a very similar, like total, totally, uh, like frenzied, uh, church massacre. Oh, that's a it. great bloodbath. It's so <laughs> great, and it's it's such a, it's almost cathartic in the way. Like, like I remember when I was watching it in the theater, I was, um, it, the movie keeps you sort of uncomfortable with its its own love of guns, but at some point, it just basically asks you to accept that you're this kind of and embrace it and like it basically right. just ask you like it's a movie that you can feel asking you to 
to just give up and accept that you want to see um, the heroes massacre a bunch of people in a church. <laughs> and and, it, and then it does it. And it does it with such gleeful um, mayhem that that I felt like the indictment was there. And I felt like the indictment was, in, was inherently a part of the film. And I know that that's not something everyone has had. That's not a reaction everyone has had because I've read and talked to plenty of people who thought that film was just, you know, um, lowbrow garbage, right? Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's so violent, because it, oh, there's what's there to, to what's, what's redeeming there. Um, and I think you always have this question, as long as you're going to have action films, as long as you're going to have, uh, these on-screen, this on-screen glorification of gun violence, right? You're going to have to have this conversation. Like, is is there ever a way to do gun violence uh, on screen in a in a blockbuster um, that doesn't feel like it's either cheapening the commentary or or, or basically just exploiting the audience's like <laughs> desire to see things blown up and t- desire to see blood and gore and guts on screen. Right. I think this and I think this horror movie obviously falls into like the glorification of violence, most definitely, like probably all horror films. But I also think it it kind of uses a few different like classic horror tropes. So like the idea of blood sacrifice, <coughs> like at that, like in order for a society to be healthy, you just have to like kill people sometimes or you have to like get rid of the low rung. So like immediately when I thought of other films, I was thinking the hunger game, which isn't necessarily a horror film, um, but, but Battle it has, Royale like, a, is <laughs> right. Battle Royale right. is yeah. like the, the trope starter, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And then I also was thinking of like the, uh, Oh gosh, the famous short story, the lottery. So yeah. it's like this idea that you're like, you have, you have people you serve up as like sacrifice. So the purge obviously plays on this quite a bit. And it's also like that, that idea of, um, sort of the village sacrifice. <laughs> like you go, mm-hmm. I think uh, that's sort of a, it's almost like a folkloric narrative too. Like thinking about stuff like the, um, the wicker man, you know, like you have the, oh, yeah. the, like the, the lone girl who's basically like, she's sort of the bait for this, this, uh, policeman that the, the village has essentially chosen to be its, sac- its annual sacrifice. Right. Like you have that type of, um, I guess, ritualistic killing going back to, to, um, to very, very far within culture. And, and you see it, I think, increasingly in films that are trying to, to sort of put forth this really conservative narrative of, of like the, the ends justify the means. Um, and I think we've been seeing a lot more of those films, um, really pop up in the action genre over the last, I'd say two decades, right. Where you get this sense of, the narrative's ultimate conclusion seems to be that it can indict, like it can indict every other person in the, in the film for violence, except the hero who gets to, to be the, um, the, the sole exception, right? Like their violence is always justified. Their violence is always, um, the thing that, that is good violence. Right. And there's, you don't really ever get a full critique of what well, you do, but very, very rarely, I think, do you get a, a film that really commits to fully critiquing the violence and critiquing the um, the sort of moral toll, the sort of mental toll <laughs> that it takes on on all the characters, no matter who's involved and no matter why, especially like, in the action genre, particularly. And I couldn't really think of any. I thought maybe maybe Logan, the X Men, the X Men film, Logan, sort of oh, yeah. got close to that, but still, it's still an X Men film, right? So. Um, so I don't know, like, I don't know what you, what your thoughts are on that, but I couldn't think of any other examples off the top of my head. 
not in the sort of blockbuster space. You know, I think the um, something that really ends up being a problem with the purge election year is that the it just felt like there was no weight to this idea. People speak about there being an, a toll to the violence, and yet it's really nobody actually believes it. They just kind of go along, right? And yeah. and that somehow you say, "Oh, no, 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 that's fine." And also, it's it's ridiculous that a movie this silly attempts more to critique um, state sanctioned violence than like our prestige. The government has to do some really messed up shit to get justice against the bad people, um, right? <laughs> you know, it's like why. You know, we gave a bunch of Oscars to Zero Dark Thirty, but, you know, but The Purge is really morally reprehensible. Sorry, guys. Like, let's yeah. step back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but that also speaks to me of why this isn't appealing. Again, to Asia's earlier point, it's appealing to people because there is the distrust in the systems that exist, that they're not here to protect us, that they are actually here to do violence. And why not make it explicit? And maybe we are getting closer to a time when people will be able to make movies that actually look at the corrosive effects, but you know, they tried it with James Bond and it didn't work. (laughs) You bring up a really interesting point, which is the sort of uh, the repercussions of the purge within the world and the lack of, uh, of, effect that it that seems to be exhibited outside of the purge for things that happen during the purge uh, and also the distinction between government sanctioned and enacted violence and private action it seems odd to me in this movie and in the universe that it seems like because the government sanctioned this is the but they the new founding fathers are strong enough to rewrite enough of our regulation to establish a night where for 12 hours everything is illegal <laughs> but still allow for a, a second party and an election now whether that is sort of being you know is is a sort of fraudulent and you know they have puppet candidates that, that might have started that way but it seems like from the purge election year that there are real candidates that are gaining support and people want this and there is a, enough of a, a, a population that they can end the purge and and win the electoral college with over 270 votes all thanks to florida um <laughs> it, it's just weird to me do private actors not have any incentive to try and stop the purge like insurance companies sure they benefit from the purge because people need purge insurance and they you know charge super high premiums and that you know you can think about that what you will but no other private entities are launching campaigns to be like hey maybe we shouldn't purge this is bad for business like in that world would amazon be like you know what Purging is actually pretty good for us. We can sell a lot of guns and bullets and ship those. Or would there be enough that Amazon or some other company would be like, maybe we shouldn't do this? 
Well, you know, Amazon would be against it because they'd be too worried about their warehouses and they wouldn't want to lose yeah. their product. I mean, um, I, I you know? think that this is, this is a really interesting question because if you asked it before 2020, my, my answer probably would have been different, but um, <laughs> it's like the Jurassic Park thing. Like you watch mm. Jurassic Park and, and you're like, well, why, why the hell are they keeping the parks open? You know, and why are the hell, why the hell are we, why the hell are we still in October of 2020 still trying to convince people that if they go outside, they will die? Like, why is that a thing that keeps having to happen? Like, why do we keep having, like, why is there such a, a social resistance to, to actually taking fundamental change to, um, to fix the pandemic, to, to basically like alleviate pain and, and harm being caused during the pandemic, right? Like instead you have, um, colleges reopening, you have schools reopening, you have everything reopening and people are just basically being told that they have to return to work, uh, and deal with it, right? Like, this is the reality that we're in. Like there's like at no point has anyone has, has there been any sort of um, uh, major, major corporation or, or, or figurehead of capitalism, I would say that has stepped (laughs) forward to, to be like, my profits are not as important as the lives of the people in my employees. So everyone will be staying home indefinitely with pay so that they'll have what they need so that they can all, return when they're healthy. Like that's not a thing that is happening. Right. So having seen this play out over the last, however many months, I don't really feel like I am as worried about the, <laughs> the, the, um, I guess the logistics of why people aren't protesting the purge as much. Right. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, and we've seen this over the, over the last four years, like the systemic destruct, like the systematic destruction of democracy in this country. Right. At every single step of the way you've had protesters in the streets, but you've not really had like, any type of, of sustained organized resistance from, uh, from, I guess, people in power in terms of people who control, um, sources of wealth and production in the country. Like, like special interest groups haven't, haven't come to come in the fold. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, just jumping off what Asia said, the, I could see different companies having different responses. What feels weird about the the movie is that there isn't that private element right. to it. You know, it's that sure. some places would be for it, some places would be against it. But we can't we're not that far into the future in this alternate universe. Giant corporations would be working hand in hand with the new founding fathers to contract, to do things like they would also have opinions just as large special interest groups have now. Um, And it's so odd that that feels like a missed opportunity because there's one moment in the purge anarchy where people are walking through downtown Los Angeles and they pass a bank and there's a man strung up with a note tied to him. And it says, here lies blah, blah, blah. He stole our pensions. Um, and that's as close as they get to, okay, the banks are definitely into something. I also wonder, I, I, I wonder if there's, um, I mean, thinking about those side stories, uh, the fact that all crime is legal, right? Like, it seems like there would be so many opportunities if the purge was really committed to um, and I haven't seen the series, so it's possible that the series is delving into this more on a on the like micro level um, that I think we're talking about. But it seems like there would be so many opportunities for a type of restorative justice and a type of of look at 
ways the the night of purging could be used to um, to rectify imbalances. Like even if it's stuff like um, I don't know sabotaging pipelines in um, in Native American uh, spaces, right? Like. A friend of mine asked me and I said, well, I'd break into a drug warehouse and I'd steal a bunch of insulin to give to people. Yeah, I was watching a YouTube video where uh, someone was saying that the way that to end the purge, to stop the purge and stop the violence is for enough people to get together and file fraudulent tax returns during the period because <laughs> it falls during the tax filing season. Oh and you can you can file your tax returns and claim a huge amount and then you'll just drain the new founding father's government. And you have to start over again. <laughs> <laughs> because the whole point of it is to save money. And I was like, that's actually really brilliant. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, it's ridiculous that we don't see any financial crimes. And I don't know if that's just because that's, yeah, of course, it's not mm-hmm. sexy. But right. everybody knows that the purge would be a huge bonanza for people who wanted to commit like wire fraud. <laughs> You know, if they right. were really going right. to do this, they should set they should set a purge, like set one of the movies at an abortion clinic. Like they should go, like try and oh, that would be so dark, <laughs> right? Like, but if they're really gonna if they're really gonna drill down into like the effects of violence on the margin on, on marginalized communities and the way that that I mean, obviously that would never get greenlit in a million years, <laughs> but right. but that that idea of like just taking the 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 um the effects of violence to the extreme most individualistic point that you can find in um in this world and i think about like oh well an abortion clinic obviously where people like individuals are would be directly impacted by the sort of the social and systemic hands at work to bring them to this point of violence right um and I think that's something that the purge keeps trying to do. I think the purge, um, the first purge, which is the sequel to election year, um, is a prequel. Sorry. It's a pre, it's, it's the film that came after election year. It's the prequel to the <laughs> right. entire franchise. Um, right. and it's set on, um, uh, Staten, Staten Island, Island, right? Yeah. Staten Island. And it's, um, basically, uh, it, it really kind of centers the entire story on one character, um, who's trying to get through the very first purge. Um, and you sort of really see how he embodies the, um, like the marginalized, the marginalized community that the purge has been hinting the entire time that is most affected basically like, like poor, uh, mainly black men, um, uh, who may have strong communities, but they're directly targeted by, by racism and by white supremacy and by systemic, uh, violence being inflicted against them. Um, and I think that this is the moment where the purge could have really, really dug into um, all of the political ramifications that it was trying to manifest over the, the three previous films. And I don't think it really got there. I think there was like one moment where you find out that some of the, um, the mobilized militia that had been hired to enact the purge, the first purge, um, you find out that some of them have white supremacist ties, um, and so forth. And like, and you get that throughout the the series. Like, I think there are a couple of, of Nazi symbols being bandied about at various points. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. but you don't really, it's just sort of like window dressing, you know? Um, and considering Definitely. where we are at, at in the culture, like right now, like, I don't know that that's responsible. <laughs> like, I don't know that you can really just sort of hand wave that. 
I also think it's interesting that throughout this discussion and we're talking about like, okay, everything's legal for an evening, but they never really discuss or it's never really brought up like the, the idea of this, like the morality of law, like even if something is legal during a time period or if there's a law, why isn't there any like this discussion of like, okay, why, like if this is legal, like, oh yeah, let's all go and do it because it's legal now. I think, I think, <laughs> I think more people would be like, at least I would hope that your, your morality steps in. You're like, okay, like maybe I, maybe I shouldn't do this. Yeah. Well, don't they say that like, isn't there a throwaway line that uh, Roan says in the election year where she says like, I don't know if she's, you know, hyperbolizing, but she says, I'm going to stay home and, you know, lock my doors like 99% of the population. Oh, I just thought that was a Bernie line. Like, uh, I I wasn't (laughs) sure. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I, I get that. And that would, that would be a good sort of reference. But I wonder is, I And because True Confessions, I have not seen any of the other Purge movies, though I am fascinated by the world that they have built. I have read a lot about them online, and this is the first time I have watched one. Well, um, I think this, like, again, it gets into the satire question, because, like, the the point of the Purge's satire is to characterize the excesses of Americans and to sort of imply that every American has this excess within them, right? Like, um and you haven't seen the the very first movie, but the the first movie ends with like um, uh, the wife of the of Ethan Hawke, who was played by Lena Headey. <laughs> sort of like she's got all of these, she's got all of her neighbors uh, corralled in in her house after this night of like terror, um, and basically she's sort of keeping them hostage <laughs> for a little bit. Um, it's a long story, but she, um, one of them, she has a gun that she's been uh, using to to keep them at bay with, and one of them reaches for the gun when her when her bat her head is turned, and she like body slams this woman on the table <laughs> and like gives her an instant massive nose like like basically breaks her nose and she screams i told you no more violence <laughs> like it's just so obviously over the top and so obviously meant to be like uh an indictment right of this this idea that every single human when pressed to the breaking point is going to turn violent like well and and I mean in the second one in, in the Purge Anarchy, which is my personal favorite, the guy like Matt yes. Landry from Friday Night Lights is in it. It's Great wonderful. name, phenomenal uh, name. But the you know, <laughs> uh, or is her, uh, Matt Saracen, Sorry, not Matt Landry. Um, my, uh, but they just lay it out, and that it does seem like almost everyone, the the sort of quote unquote normals. It does seem like the morality of the Purge is everyone agrees that it's wrong and then it's just the rich people they they have all of these lines throughout the movie where you know at one point the grandfather of the two female like this mother and daughter uh pair that start is the main character to the movie um he writes them a letter and he gets into a limo and and he's he, the letter says oh you know i've i'm making myself a martyr to a wealthy family so they like say explicitly the rich people decide to purge by hiring people that they can just kill in their homes where they're safe. And uh, there's an auction for people like wealthy people who all have these garishly lit, um, very reminiscent of the black hole sun video by Soundgarden in some ways. And they're, you know, desperate. They're bidding on the chance to, to join in this last hunt of the purge. And it, it, Lays seems to make it the point that the people who are most invested in this are the people 
for whom the laws were in, in invented for the first place in the first place that this the purge is so that rich people can get their yayas out because they can't like have drop down fights at the country club like they did in dynasty and it's sort of a weird it doesn't make any sense and they kind of carry it over to the purge mass but that would be something I would be much more interested in seeing like what is the social what are the social consequences within the the groups of people that actually decide to purge because it's just assumed that it happens. Right. It's also assumed that there are no long lasting repercussions like, oh, well, it was the purge. You can't help it. But like in reality, obviously there would be, you know, if you really hated your neighbor, so you, so you killed your neighbor, um, (laughs) that might have ramifications for the way the rest of your block treats you the rest of the year. Right. Like we don't really see any of that. Like it's the idea that there's just, um, yeah. And like, this might be kind of an implied part of the commentary because as we know from American history, we all have a, we have a society wide ability to draw a tidy blank over our own memories of institutional, institutional trauma. Right. And, um, and it seems like in the mic at the micro level, the purge is implying that that happens every year, you know? Yeah. Cause it's like, there's this social acceptance of the purge that's like well it, it's kind of like you know what happens in vegas it's like what happens on purge night everyone just kind of is like waves their hand at it whereas you know i wonder like in a job interview or like you know if you're getting if you apply to a job and then you post a bunch of pictures on facebook or on twitter of you like can't wait for purge or like just purged last night and, because you know that it's legal and you don't have to worry about it would employers not be like well we don't want a perjurer in our office or would they would the new founding fathers codify that into something that you can't discriminate based on well that's it's, actually it, a part of the television show i think i remember from what? one of the episodes where the there's some young couple and they are they're struggling to make it and they you know to be accepted to get this job like you have to be like you have to purge to be accepted into this you know, exclusive oh, so they service. flip it. It's yeah. that you have to purge to yeah. get the job. You're not oh, the right kind of person unless you're willing to do this. And <laughs> it's, it's great idea. <laughs> have no idea if the show's so ridiculous. I mean, this movie is not good, right? And the fact that there's been four of them and there's like more in the works, it's just like mind blowing to me. But another thing I was thinking of, like, if we're getting into like the nerdier aspects of the movie, like, why didn't they build out? Like, why? How do you get a job after you purge? Like Landry said, they like very briefly mentioned this idea of murder tourism and the fact that people would travel from other countries to come in just to kill Americans. And I think... <laughs> I, like, do you think they sell packages for that they sell like you know you bundle your flight and your hotel sure and we like throw entire, in a gun like, safari retreat oh 100 percent yeah oh my gosh. hotels like i'm sure that they probably have like <gasps> like you know like like haunted house attractions except that like you get like i don't know you you pay five thousand dollars or ten i don't know however many thousands of dollars to be in the like to have like a most dangerous game night or something, you know? Right. Yeah. Or you you stay at the hotel. It's like stay at your own risk because everyone is going to be hunting everyone right, else right. in this hotel. Give me my money, James DeMonaco. <laughs> Give like, me my money. Like, like doing a doing a version of the of the purge where they just do where it's sleep no more, but like it's sleep no more on purge night. You know, like so you're just oh like, my. <laughs> Uh, we gotta write this Uh, we gotta write this down guys (laughs) go 
going back to what you guys said about the the kind of like business side of this, I keep thinking about how the purge as uh, as a theme has at its core the, the sort of basic marketing need to make Americans fear and be afraid so that they'll buy stuff, so that they'll consume stuff to help their to help their um, keep them comfortable, keep them safe. And to some extent, like you obviously like need to have the most expensive uh, security system, at whatever, right. Um, in order to survive purge night. And so like the very first purge movie really emphasizes that Ethan Hawke is living in this like probably gated community in this very, very secure house. Right. That is still not secure enough to keep uh, the purgers from getting inside. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I keep thinking about like how expensive that entire like home security must have been and thinking like, so what do people, what do people do if they're, if they're living in apartments? Like, how does that look for like, how does like the average New Yorker uh, protect themselves from the purge if they're, if they're wealthy and they can afford it, but they're living in an apartment, right? Or a condo. Um, And I also wonder how that system sustains itself because once you've outfitted everybody, once you've given everybody, um, the security system, what else can you sell them? Like, like what are the other accoutrements of capitalism that, that coalesce around purges, if that makes sense? Yeah. And I just think like, there are so many, so many good stories you could tell as like offshoots of this story. Like (laughs) I, I, and by good, I mean like absolutely terrible. Like they turned out to be absolutely terrible films, but I just think like, this whole, like, there are so many, like, one-liners they throw in, and whether it's, like, murder tourism or, like, purge insurance, or, and, like, I'm sure the show goes into more detail. I, I'm going to admit, too, I've never seen the show. And, you know, after this conversation, I probably still won't go and see the show. But <laughs> um, I, I just, like, there's so much there's so much that's ripe for oppor- so much opportunity here to really expand on the universe Um, because apparently there's a big enough audience to do so. But I think another thing that came up while you guys were talking is this idea that like, so obviously the rich and like we were saying, the uh, big businesses are capitalizing on this purge night, whether they're selling security or they're selling guns or what have you. And it's like they're, um, and then the rich participate because it's like a way to like, (laughs) for lack of better terms, like get out their need to be violent. Um, And that was like, very similar to the conversation we had about Westworld was this idea that like, because um, the rich are willing, ready and willing to pay money to go into this alternate world where they can be like not judged and they can go like live in the wild West and like shoot people if they want or like cheat on their wives with like robot esque almost. Well, I mean, Westworld's a whole nother story, but it's the same idea as like the rich have like uh, these access points where they have to like, where they're there, where they can like express all their sins and they can go and do as they please. And it just got me thinking of like that same conversation that came up and it's a, it's another conversation for it. That's eminent in Jurassic world as well. But I just thought it was interesting that yet again, we have, uh, have a story that is, uh, it revolves around this idea that they're, the rich are paying to do these these terrible things in order to, I don't know if it's like to get this, is it like stress relief or is it like, I I don't know they're like living out their, their violent dreams, what have you. But I just think it's, it's kind of another, another element to make you think whether or not the throughout, throughout the purge movies, if like they're speaking to a larger critique of like capitalism, or if they're just speaking to a larger critique of like, 
democracy or like democracy run run amok. Um, I've always because thought it was an attempt to critique capitalism. Uh, not necessarily successful uh, <laughs> in almost every way, but <laughs> uh, but it's it is smart to connect it to other films uh, that have been made recently that lay out explicitly that we have created a system by which the richest people among us function and operate under a completely different system of rules, whether it's for the way they make money, the way they spend their time, the way they can get away with, you know, the way they operate through the justice system, the way that they get a special Uber VIP space in LAX. And there's a, everybody wants to kind of understand that because it's so foreign and this just happens to use explicit gory violence because don't we all, I mean, I certainly think that somebody that rich would probably kill me for sport if they could, like, it just doesn't seem that for far-fetched, sure. but, you know? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's it's like that Parks and Rec bit with Jason Mansukis where Aunt Aziz Ansari says, like, I think that dude wants to hunt me. <laughs> I mean, I I love these movies, and I'm so ashamed that I can't stop loving them. I'm excited for whatever comes <laughs> next, but I will save more of my commentary for whatever poor has to go see The Purge 5 with me. <laughs> I just looked it up. The Forever Purge is apparently what it's called. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm so excited for that. Oh, God. Is that, is that also coming out on, like, July 4th, or what are we moving it, it to probably. now? Probably. I think it was supposed to come out this year, and then, you oh, know, yeah, the world happened. They really want, they love putting them out during election years. Uh Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I think a purge during pandemic would be something that this that the series is probably inevitably going to do. So we just should brace for that now. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Oh, yeah. I was thinking when somebody mentioned everybody wearing masks, I was like, the purge COVID would be terrible. <laughs> oh. oh, gosh. I, it's too real. Yeah, and they're going to do it. I, can, I know they're going to do it. Purge-demic. Oh. No, yeah. no, no. No. It's coming. We should save all of these ideas, by the way. Um, <laughs> we said them first. We should, we should destroy all of these ideas. You should just, <laughs> I don't know, destroy this person <laughs> podcast episode. <laughs> and now for the portion of the show where we get to share all of the other pieces of media that we've been enjoying during the pandemic. This is Locked In. So, Asia, Meredith, what else have you been enjoying with your time at home? Uh, I've been enjoying a lot of Chinese drama uh, throughout the year because I got really into this drama called The Untamed, which I actually wrote about for Vox and which is you've probably seen on your social media timelines here and there because it's been wildly popular. Um, and I started watching that in January and have just sort of fallen down the rabbit hole of uh, watching all kinds of entertainment related to the actors and also watching more Chinese drama um, and more adaptations by the author who wrote the book that the intent is based on. So there's a lot of different threads that I've been following. Um, one of them that I'm watching right now that I'm really enjoying is this drama called Winter Begonia, which is set in the, in, in the thirties uh, in the, in the Peking opera house. Um, so one of its, its main characters is the star of the Peking opera and he befriends um 
this man who basically is the the son of a a, a really wealthy family that gets drawn into like uh, interpersonal and political conflict, uh, and it, it sort of follows them and their friendship over the years, and it's really fascinating and really engrossing, and I just I really am enjoying it. Um, and the other thing that I've been really uh, enjoying lately is this uh, uh, animated series. It's well in China we would call it that they would call it Donghua, um, of this book called the Scum Villain Self Saving System, which is this really funny um, uh, series where the main character gets sort of um, transported into. A terrible harem novel <laughs> and he finds himself <laughs> he finds himself uh he, he's basically been a fan of this harem novel he's been reading it online and he knows all of the plot from start to finish because he's like a super fan and he gets transported into the novel after he dies in real life so uh he finds himself basically occupying the role of the the worst villain in the show um or in the novel and he knows that he has to change the plot because his character winds up getting like all of his arms and limbs chopped off. So he has to find a way to befriend the hero who ultimately will, um, will amputate all of his limbs if he doesn't figure out how to change the plot of the story. Right. Um, so he does that by trying to subtly shift the narrative, but he can't shift it too, too far because uh, he's basically kind of stuck within the, the constraints of the harem novel as if he were a non-playable character in a game. Um, so he can only, like, he can't be out of character or he'll get points deducted. And if he gets too many points, he dies. Um, but if he doesn't change the story, then he dies anyway. Um, so it's sort of really intricate and, and satirical and funny. Um, and so I've just been watching this and seeing where it's going to go. Um, and it's been kind of delight. So I guess those are my two kind of obscure wrecks for you guys. Winter Begonia and uh, the scum villain self-saving system. So Ooh. Um, my... Thoughts are a little bit, uh, they're less obscure, I guess, but uh, um, I just finished a couple of books. One I uh, is currently an audiobook, and it's coming out uh, in like physical paper edition on December 1st. It's called A Certain Hunger by Chelsea G. Summers, and it is a memoir by a woman in her early 50s who was a food critic, a magazine writer during the boon years of the media industry, who's also a sociopath that um, murders and eats her lovers. Uh, so uh, yes, there it is. And the purge. it is delightful. Is every food critic a sociopath who murders and eats their lovers? Like, I, I mean, just- I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I I certainly hope so, but um, it is <laughs> it is just so much fun. I had a great time. I actually listened to it uh, while driving from New York to Wisconsin, and so that was a wonderful way to spend the time. And I just think the the heroine, the main character, is unique and different. And you know, we rarely get to stand up for the sisterhood when it comes to being a complete and total psychopath so that one really does it for me uh, <laughs> excellent um and also a book called i remember you by irsa sigurar's daughter an icelandic writer and it's a ghost story uh cool. that absolutely creeped the hell out of me but i was unable to put down and read in about 12 hours so what's it called 
I Remember You. It's from 2010, I think. Uh, And uh, other than that, I've been really enjoying watching basically everything on the the channel Shudder, the horror app, because they have great selections. So I've just been telling everyone that if they need something creepy to watch, they should try on the free subscription and then just get hooked because I need people to talk about these things with. (laughs) For me, in true Halloween fashion, I have um, committed to watching Hocus Pocus at least three or four more times in the month of October. Um, I do have the movie on DVD. Um, Unfortunately, we will not be covering it on Pop and Lock, but maybe some point (laughs) in the future. Um, We, not for lack of trying. We tried. We really did. Um, And then I have finally, finally, finally gotten the new uh, Hunger Games book, which is the, I guess it's the prequel to the... um, to the original books um, on, I was on hold for the library for like 15 weeks because it, the book is new. So I I've only just started that. And I have also joined the Shits Creek bandwagon. Um, I am already through the first season and I started this, this week. So uh, I would say that's a win, a win for me. Um, and I, I, it's, it's one of those shows similar to like new girl that um, you can have it on the background. Uh, if you miss a little, a few parts, it's okay. It's funny. There are lots of good one-liners um, and it also recently won a, won a ton of awards. So um, I'm hopeful that the next few seasons will get even better as I've, as I've been told. Um, other than that, not, not a whole lot in the book space besides hunger games. Oh, I did finish, Stephen King's, I guess, his most recent novel, which is The Institute, um, which is excellent. And I would not be surprised if it gets turned into a TV show and or movie, just like his book, The Outsiders, did. A Stephen King thing? Probably won't happen. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't happen a lot. Right, right. Because his stuff is just like totally not famous at all. Right. I also have been watching lots of Shudder. So, Meredith, if you need a Shudder pal, I will be your Shudder pal. Oh. Shudder buddy. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) I, I would love nothing more, Asia. That sounds fantastic. Uh, in the book realm, I just reread a book. I read actually a few years ago. It's been out for several years now, but um, it is called Intimations by Alexandra Kleeman. It's a book of short stories. Um, it, there's a lot of, you know, very different styles and the writing is just very beautiful and very personal. Um, but if you want to get a taste of it, there's, uh, one story in there that is what actually made me want to read the book that I read before that you can read online, uh, on the online magazine, Guernica magazine. It is called You Disappearing, uh, you comma disappearing. Uh, it's basically about, uh, an apocalypse style event where instead of a you know you know fireball coming down and destroying the planet or a massive flood or anything things randomly just blink out of existence one at a time and it'll be like one day there aren't any shoes and everybody's shoes disappear or magazines disappear one day and there's no you know in, in a sort of magical realism way there's no you know, description of why it happens. They don't understand how or can't predict it at all, but things just start blinking out of existence. And it not only affects people and uh, uh, objects, but also thoughts and memories and feelings. And it is all told from the perspective of a woman who her relationship or her, her relationship with someone is basically it has fallen apart somehow and it's just this like 
beautiful, subtle story about a, an apocalypse that no one else has written about in a similar way that I think really gives a good example of what the book is about and I think is is great and easy to read. So that's You Disappearing by Alexandra Kleeman. Cool. Um, I have also talked about on this show a lot before. Uh, I'm a big fan of people streaming tabletop role-playing games <laughs> online. I've talked about you know the big names, Critical Role, Dimension 20, etc. But there are two that have recently just started that I would really, really like for a lot of people to get behind, which are uh, NDND, which stands for Native Dungeons & Dragons. It is an all-Native uh, Indigenous Peoples uh cast in the uh in an entirely new world um and it's really really interesting and i think they bring an interesting perspective to a very very uh generally white male um field uh, and sort of you know colonial uh even game with dungeons and dragons it's sort of rooted in that so ndnd i'm hoping really uh, gets a large following as it gets started as well as into the motherlands which is an all person of color cast which isn't actually dungeons and dragons it's a different system of gameplay but it's about a, a civilization that you know was founded when the uh, people following mansa musa uh, ventured and found a new dimension uh, who is Mansa Musa, for those who don't know, is apparently historically one of the richest people that has ever lived, if not the richest. Um, and it's sort of about this sci-fi adventure that these characters go on in this entirely different world where the trappings of colonialism and imperialism apparently do not exist. Um, and they get to explore this world in a way that they really uh, get to control and, and sort of set their own path for. So I think it could be really, really cool. And I like all of the people that are playing on it. So check out Into the Motherlands on Twitch.tv. Um, I've also watched the Halloween Town Quadrilogy ah, yes. uh, in honor of Spooky Season. Nice. Um, and I am hard into the game Genshin Impact, um, which is like Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, but it's anime and it's a gotcha game. So you're collecting all of these characters and casting spells and fighting animals and stuff. And it's, it's free to play. <laughs> it's just a lot of fun. And it's fun to, you know... You know, like with Fortnite or anything, there's microtransactions, but you get free ones and get bulls and can earn weapons and characters and stuff. If that's the kind of thing you're into, I think you'd like Genshin Impact. Thanks for listening. If you think you have a way to solve or at least survive the purge more effectively than tax fraud, make sure to tweet at us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at poppinlockpod. That's pop, the letter N, lock, with an E like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.